Two important words, words that we use a lot, validation and acceptance. And depending on how these words are used, they can be important to almost anyone. To be validated, in one sense, means to be deemed worthwhile. If you're in a meeting or situation or even just with your family and you make a statement and that statement is inputted into the situation and into the conversation and different people respond to that statement and they agree with that statement, there's that sense of validation, that sense of what I said was necessary. What I said was maybe worth thinking about. And in that sense of validation, we find acceptance. And it feels good to be validated. It feels good to be accepted. But typically what I've just talked about is something that we do, something that we interject, a statement we make, a a contribution we make. We had to put forth the effort to be validated. But every now and then, every now and again, we might find ourselves in a situation where we find ourselves validated or accepted and we didn't do anything. We're kind of validated by who we know. You know, oh, you're a friend of, oh, well, then you're a friend of mine. You, you, you've said that, I've said that. Oh, you hired so-and-so? Well, I'll hire them. Who do you recommend? I remember our neighbors several years ago said, hey, who do you recommend to deal with water softeners? I said, well, here's the guy we've used for years. A few, few days later, they came back and they said, thank you. He was great. Oh, man, he was, that was the best. I felt kind of validated. Uh, sometimes we're validated by not doing anything. There have been times, it happens less and less as I get older and older, But there are certain times where I'm in a situation and it comes up that I have a happen to have one of my master's degrees is in counseling and some will go, oh, where did you study? And I'll say where I studied and then I'll mention the two professors that kind of led the program and if a person is of a certain age, they will go, whoa, you studied under them? You knew them? I said, well, yeah. In fact, I went to the one guy's cabin and had a couple teenagers haul out his fireplace insert. And we put it in our house and heated with wood for seven years. You know, and yeah, we I, I we knew these I knew these guys personally. I was in a small group with them, and you know, and it's like, whoa. There's a sense of really kind of yeah, yeah. I'm somebody, huh? I'm validated. Not I didn't do anything. I paid money and took a class, but that kind of validation comes along sometimes. Today. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Zechariah. We're going to look today at two visions from Zechariah in which two leaders are validated by God and accepted. And in the chapters that we're going to look at today, we're going to see that these two leaders, as they are validated and accepted by God, are also symbolic of God's work both in the present and in the future. And we're going to see that oftentimes what God does in the present has a purpose far beyond that moment. And in fact, the purpose that we're going to see today in Zechariah chapters 3 and 4 is a purpose that, that really fits what we've celebrated in communion. Because God is giving an indication of what's coming 
far down the road. Zechariah 3 opens with uh, what you would at best say a, a courtroom scene. There's the high priest, his name is Joshua, and in this vision that Zechariah has, Joshua is standing before the Lord. And, and there in the courtroom is uh, the angel of the Lord and Satan. The word Satan is actually a word that uh, in, in the Hebrew has a, a definite article in front of it. It would be the Satan. It's actually literally translated the accuser. So he's there kind of like a prosecuting attorney. And he's there kind of having this Joshua dead to rights. He's got his case built up. And so Zacharias says there, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, standing at his right side to accuse him. And if, you look at, if you've been to any courtroom scene, the prosecuting attorney typically is to the right of the defendant and the defense attorney. And so this courtroom scene is set up, and the Lord doesn't even give Satan an opportunity. Zechariah says in his vision, he saw this, the Lord said to the accuser, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? So right out of the chute, we find that Satan is rebuked because Joshua, the high priest standing before them, is someone whose life has been saved, has been snatched out of, as it were, a burning fire. And now Zechariah describes what he sees. Joshua dressed in filthy clothes. He stood before the angel. So Joshua is standing there in filthy clothes as one who's been snatched out of the fire. And the whole scene, the, the whole scene that Zechariah sees is this one in filthy clothes representing the people of Israel. See, the priest was a mediator. He came between God and the people. And so Joshua, standing there in his filthy clothes, is standing there, in, as it were, in all of his sin. And God speaks. Now Joshua, dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel, the angel said to those who were standing there, take off his filthy clothes. And, and then he said to Joshua, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. So here the, the, the word comes to everybody, to the angels, take off those filthy clothes and I am going to put clean clothes on you. And Zechariah says, and put a clean turban on his head too. And I want you to note very carefully in this vision, Joshua does nothing. He's a passive recipient of God's grace. And what I observe from that and from God's word is that the cleansing of sin is God's work. You see, God cleans us up spiritually because we can't clean ourselves i don't have the capacity to take care of my own sin in a way that god does god cleans us up spiritually because we can't clean ourselves now i i tell you when i have sin and when i know that i've sinned i am to admit that sin to agree with god that i've sinned that's confession 
And I have a responsibility then to change my behavior, to change my attitude, to turn away from that sin, and to walk in a way that's in obedience to God. That's repentance. But only God can cleanse me of my sin. Only God can remove my sin as far as the east is from the west, as he says in the Psalms. And I have to remember that. I confess, I repent, but God does the cleansing work. And I think sometimes some of us think we have to do the cleansing work. I think sometimes some of us fall into the trap of thinking we have to do the cleansing work. And, and where I most run into that is when I'm talking to someone and, 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 and they rehearse a failure and they just say, I can't forgive myself. I know God forgave me, but I can't forgive myself. And I'm telling you, I'm one who rehearses his failures a lot. Uh, and, and I'm reminded that I have to receive God's forgiveness you see, when I say I can't forgive myself, that's me trying to cleanse myself of my sin. And the Bible says when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. I don't have the capacity to cleanse myself. And so I need to accept God's cleansing work because since He has forgiven me, I can forgive myself. I can. I can't change the past, but I can forgive myself as God has forgiven me. You see, one of the reasons we come to the communion table, as we've done today, is to remember that ultimate cleansing of sin is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We go on. Zechariah, verse 5, has said, put a clean turban on his head. And, and the angel of the Lord then gave a charge to Joshua, verse 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Joshua, he's, he's passive in the sense that he can't cleanse himself from his sin. He's passive in the sense that the new clothes are put on him. But once that has happened, once he's received God's grace, once he's received God's forgiveness, then he's given a charge to serve God wholeheartedly. And you know, when I was going through this and I was studying that, I, I literally stopped at that point. And I wrote this question down in my notes, and you're going to have to just hear it. It's not even on the screen, so I, I would encourage you to write this question down. It's very simple. How do I respond to the grace of God? How do I respond to the grace of God? If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have received the grace of God. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. You, you know, and, and some of us respond to the grace of God by saying, Awesome! I've got my ticket. I'm going to heaven. I can live any way I want because I got my ticket. And I would, and Apostle Paul in Romans, and we'll see that in January and on when we get to it, Paul says, Shall we sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How do I respond to the grace of God? I realize God's grace is a free gift. How do I respond to that? 
I realize that it's not grace if you owe somebody something. I get that. But how do I respond to the grace of God? Joshua was told, serve God wholeheartedly. And I would simply say, the best response, in my opinion, to the grace of God is to learn every day what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself and allow God's grace to change you. But God's not done there. Uh, he's, He's not done there at all. He says... I, you walk in, he says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. If you walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. So he says, you know, serve me wholeheartedly, and I'm going to reward you. I'm going to give you a place standing there. But then he says this, verse 8, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I've set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. God says there's even something more. This is for now, Joshua. For now you've been cleansed. For now you stand between me and the people. For now, Joshua, serve me wholeheartedly. But Joshua, there's something better coming. There's something bigger coming. And and the, the, the vision reaches all the way back to the words of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, where God promises to raise up a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just as just and right. It's very possible that, that 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 stone with the seven eyes, we'll talk about that in a second, that that stone with the seven eyes is the, is the cornerstone in Psalm 118.22, the stone that was rejected. It's very possible that that stone is also referenced in Isaiah 28.16 where Isaiah writes, See, I lay in Zion a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. And, and then we, we could fast forward to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 to 22 where Paul says, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of our faith. What? Joshua is seeing that he doesn't probably fully understand is God is saying, I have a plan and you are symbolic of the mediator that I'm going to send who is going to be the branch, the king, the Messiah who's going to remove sin in a single day. The seven eyes, that's kind of a weird thing for us, but it's a very explicable, explainable word picture. The number seven is the number of completion. Some say it's the perfect number. I don't like using that word. It's it's a complete number. Uh, God created the world in six days. He rested on the seventh. Completion. Our week now is based on seven days. It's it's completion. And and so the, the idea is there's this, that God's picture is complete. But the idea of seven eyes, the different eyes is representing of the knowledge and understanding of God you guys you all have we've all used this expression at one time or another remember okay maybe it was just me but remember in school and the teacher was writing something on the on the 
back in the day on the chalkboard. And remember, I remember throwing a spitwad at one of my friends. And the teacher saying, Howington? And I thought, that teacher has eyes in the back of their head. How did they see that? How did they know that? How did they know it was me? And, and I got pretty good at the, you know, the teenage, what? Me? I, I got, I, I, but that's kind of the idea here. Just as that teacher, we thought, had eyes in the back of their head, God does in a sense. He can see everything. And it's saying this is one who is all-knowing, who is all-understanding. And, and, and the, the idea, the theological term is omniscience, all-knowing. And I would just come out and say that what Zechariah is seeing in this vision is a vision of the Messiah. Joshua's work is symbolic of the work that's coming. Symbolic of the divine mediator. And God says, my point, my desire, what's going to happen, Joshua, is I am going to raise up the branch. I am going to plant the chief cornerstone. I do know what's going on. And it's part of my plan. And notice this, and I mentioned it earlier, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. The term to remove is a term that means take away permanently. You see, for the next years until he passed away, Joshua would reside over a ceremony every year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Every year he would come together on the Day of Atonement. There would be the sacrifices, there would be the goat that was slain. There would be the scapegoat that was sent out into the wilderness. It would happen every year. Every year uh, that would happen. And God is saying through Zechariah, there's going to come a time when it's going to be done in a single day. There's going to come a time when I'm going to take care of the sin of this nation once for all. And it happened. Jesus died on the cross for our sins once for all. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are cleansed. When we come back to him, we have that opportunity to come back for forgiveness. When we, uh, when we come to Christ, there, Romans says there's therefore now no condemnation. We have peace with God. It's all through the work of Christ. And then Zechariah sees at the end of this first vision, in that day each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord. That is a word picture of peace and provision. There is coming a day of perfect peace and provision. We are not there yet. But when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we experience right now spiritual peace and provision. I just quoted Romans 5.1, we have peace with God. We can have peace in difficult times. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, you know, we're to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with thanksgiving, present our requests to the Lord, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We don't need to say, it's scary out there. Because I have the peace of God that rules my heart. And I might be concerned with circumstances and situations, but God is in complete control. And he's saying, that day, 
when I remove the sin in one day, I will make sure that there is complete peace and provision. But wait, there's more. In chapter 4, the scene shifts. There were two characters that stood out. One was Joshua, the high priest, but then there's this guy, Zerubbabel. We were introduced to him last week. And it's like the prophet is awakened, but maybe he's just awakened from one vision to go into a next vision. And he said, it was like someone awakened me from sleep. And, I, and he said, what do you see? Don't you like that? Have you ever been woken up from sleep? Get up, get up. What do you see? Well, right now I just see the back of my eyelids. You know, in a minute I, maybe I can focus. What do you see? And I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. And also there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other is on the left. And so all of a sudden Zechariah sees this vision and, and, and he sees this second vision. He say, okay, I see this lampstand kind of maybe like a menorah and there's these two olive trees and, and somehow there's a way that the olive oil is, is continually supplied to the lamp. And so there's some symbols here that we've got to get a, an understanding of. In the tabernacle, and ultimately in the temple, there was always the lampstand. And the lampstand was to, the lamp was to burn 24-7. And it was symbolic of both the presence and the light of God. And uh, it would be God being the light for his people Israel. Later on, Jesus would say, I am the light of the world. And, and so he sees these things and, and he says, what are these, my Lord? And the angel says, do you not know what they are? No, it's kind of why I asked. And so the angel then speaks, and the message for us is found in verses 6 through 10. And verse 6, the angel says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord all." mighty the strength and the energy and the resources to do God's work comes from God and verse 6 is a reminder that we are not to be that we will not be eternally successful in our own power in fact what we find here the message of the second vision is really simply this God in His grace empowers us to serve Him as we learn to trust Him. In His grace, God empowers us to serve Him as we trust Him. Verse 6, that reminder, it's not by your strength, it's not by your might. Now let me just tell you, and I will circle back to this, the job that Zerubbabel was overseeing was to build a new temple to replace the one that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar 70-some years earlier. Solomon's great temple was destroyed, and now they're starting to rebuild. And God says, the strength and the energy and the resources to do my work come from me, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Don't mistake the capstone for the cornerstone. The cornerstone is foundational. The capstone 
is put on at the very end. It's the completion. And he's saying, Zerubbabel, you're going to complete the work. Not because you are so great. You're a good guy. you got skills. But it's because of my spirit within you. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The strength and the energy and the resources to do God's work comes from him. But God uses what we have, and he does great things. In the book of Exodus, in chapter 4, verse 2, Moses is there in front of the burning bush, and it says that he had a staff in his hands, basically a big stick. It's all he needed. And in fact, just 18 verses later, in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 20, that stick is referred to, and from that point on as, the staff of God. 